open up to Isaiah 32, and we are going to be covering, covering chapters 32 and 33. Um, we're going to be in another section where we're going to try and move somewhat quick, two chapters probably a week. Um, and so you can read ahead for next week, uh, chapters 34 and 35. I'm going to hold to my promise to get us through Isaiah within a year. So it's been a long winter, hasn't it? Amen. Who thinks it's been a long winter? Wettest year in many decades. Uh, lots of cloud cover and darkness. We lived up to our stereotypical Northwest identity this year, did we not? And on Wednesday, when I got a chance in between some meetings to go out on the deck, uh, there was this spot where the sun was directly hitting, and I kind of ran over to it and stood and tried to soak it up. I think within three seconds I got sunburned because uh, of my pale skin. And I soaked in the, the light because, man, it has been a long winter. As I stood there squinting into the sunlight, I realized that it was kind of the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, realizing that we're not quite there yet, but we're getting close, that after a long and wet and dark winter, uh, summer is coming. And yet I know, just as you do, that it's not totally over. I think the very next day, that evening, it got down to 39, right? Uh, We've got a very bipolar climate here in in the Northwest. Uh, This morning, uh, as we look at chapters 32 and 33, we're going to get kind of a similar feeling. Uh, Poor Isaiah, man, he flips back and forth, doesn't he? Judgment to salvation, old way to new way. And we're going through, uh, we've been going through a long section called the woes, right? Woe is me, we've been going through the woes. And we're moving out of that, and we're starting to get to a place where we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, because beginning in chapter 42 of Isaiah, on through 66, we're going to start reading things called servant songs, okay? These are songs, poetry, that are written to speak specifically of Jesus Christ and the Messiah that would come, Jesus himself, that would bring salvation to the people. And it talks a ton about the millennial kingdom and what we're to expect in the new Jerusalem. And I'm excited for those chapters, aren't you guys? It's been a long winter in the woes, right? But the reality is, is we learn a ton through the woes. And so today, we're going to start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, My hope for each of us this morning is that uh, we will walk away with some serious understanding of who... um, who God is and what his vision uh, for his kingdom is, and what our vision as a community should be for Mission Fellowship. I think so many of us get so geared in our individualistic mindset of what is my life going to look like. I think we as a community need to understand and have a vision for what is our community going to look like in the days ahead. So if you can remember as far back, I know this is hard, remember as far back as two weeks ago. Quick question, how many of you remember what you ate for breakfast this morning? A few of you. How many of you don't remember? Yeah, early onset Alzheimer's right here, okay? If you can remember back as far as two weeks ago, we looked at chapters 30 and 31, and the question that came up was, what do we turn to for security? What do we turn to for escape? What do we go to to be, quote-unquote, carefree? In reality, the question is, is what do we trust? We found the phrase in the psalm, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the Lord our God. And within that text, we saw that the people of Judah had turned to Egypt, a group of people that once were their enemy, once had brought them into slavery. They'd turned to them in order to try and find rescue, and it made no sense to us. Specifically, they'd turned to the king of that country, Pharaoh, 
for protection and security. But as we saw, the protection and security of that king would turn to shame and worthlessness. It wouldn't amount to anything. Pharaoh's strength was powerless to help. And so we saw that God promised to protect Judah by destroying Assyria and destroying them so badly that they didn't need to go to Egypt, but they had already done so. And so they were coming to destroy Judah, Assyria was, and they were actually walking into their own destruction. Look back just with me a little bit from 32 to chapter 30, verse 33. Chapter 30, verse 33. We saw that the Assyrian army was actually walking into their own destruction, and the king of the Assyrians, he was walking into his own funeral. It speaks there in 33, for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. This is the king of Assyria. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance, and the breath of the Lord like a stream of sulfur kindles it. The king of Assyria was walking into his own funeral pyre. And so while the king of Egypt was worthless and the king of Assyria was going to be destroyed, God pronounces this last of the great woes in Isaiah saying, Woe to you who turn to the wrong king, the wrong power, the wrong kingdom for protection. What we should be doing is we should be looking to the Holy One of Israel and his kingdom. But this is human nature, is it not? We want so badly to be like those around us, that to turn to something different, to be that different is scary for us. This is why the Israelites, even though their king was God himself, they cried out and said, give us a king. And God told his prophet Samuel, he said, "They're they're not refusing you, Samuel, they're refusing me as their king. We want to be so much like the kingdom that we're immersed in that we don't care if it destroys us. And so God calls to those who are truly his people here in Isaiah, and he calls to you this morning, each and every one of you that call yourselves Christians. And he says, don't turn to that kingdom, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted. That was the wording that he used in chapter 31, verse 6. He says, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. And so we are presented with a question, to whom do we turn? In what do we trust? To whom will we be loyal? Isaiah has been progressively posing this question to us throughout his book, giving vision of two kingdoms, two choices, two ways, saying, choose one and walk in it. And he's been showing us, as the Bible talks about, two specific ages, the age that is passing away and the age that is to come. And today, we need to consider where we are individually and collectively as a church because we are only as good as our weakest link. Where are we? And what I want to show you today is that we are living in the age of overlap. Now, it sounds like a weird phrase, but I want you to get that. That's what I'm titling this sermon this morning, Living in the Age of Overlap. Overlap of what? Overlap of the two kingdoms and the ages that go along with them, the age that is passing away and the age that is to come. And so as we look through this today, I want you to take very careful note that there is no third way. We talked about this in depth at Crew on Tuesday. Was it last Tuesday or the Tuesday before? Last Tuesday. Wow, time flies. We went through Psalm chapter 1. And Psalm 1 is very clear. There are two ways, not a third way that we can invent on our own. Not a third way of apathy, where we get to keep our life in the one kingdom and then ask to be transferred into the other kingdom when we die. 
or when the rapture happens. That is not a third way. There are two ways, two kingdoms, two ages. And so let's first look at this morning a comparison of the two ages. A comparison of the two ages. And we'll see Isaiah doing this in chapter 32. It says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. In chapter 31, verse 6, God cries out and he begs his people to turn to the one from whom people have deeply revolted. This act of turning itself is repentance. We talked about this two weeks ago. Repentance is not, I'm going to think about a different God. I'm going to acknowledge a different God. And it is also not, I'm going to just change all my actions and become really religious. To repent is to say, I turn to this idol or God or thing in order to gain salvation and security and comfort. And to say, I'm no longer going to do that and I'm going to turn to Christ because he is going to be my king, my savior, the one that I turn to for comfort and rest. That is repentance. It is a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of worldview and philosophy, and a change of action that is the outcome of all of those things. As readers, Isaiah has turned our gaze from the kingdom of Egypt, the kingdom that represents darkness, to view something else. He starts it out with, Behold! In other words, the people in Isaiah's mind, some of them have turned and they have started to view Yahweh, the God that we serve, that came as Jesus Christ. And in turning, he says, look at what you see. It's a king that will be reigning in righteousness. And as we blink, allowing our eyes to adjust, blinking because we've turned from the darkness to the light, those words hit us powerfully. This is not just a king, but the king. God with us, Emmanuel, the Lord, the highest authority, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who rules and reigns over all the earth. And how do we know that this is not just any king, but it is Jesus Christ? Well, this is what the entire Bible points to. Yahweh himself, the Psalms speak of him in 89 and 97, it speaks of him as reigning on a throne, And that throne is righteousness and justice. Notice what it says in Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love, the word in Hebrew is hesed, and faithfulness go before you. This is who the God that we serve is. This is Yahweh that the Jews worshipped. And this is who we know through the person of Jesus Christ. God himself, Yahweh, became incarnate in flesh in Jesus Christ. And he breathed upon us the Holy Spirit. And by that, we come to understand his word and be united together with him for eternity. This is the God that we serve and the God that the whole Bible has been looking to. And what we see in these first five verses is we see an age to come. The age to come and what it looks like. First, we see that it's based 
on righteousness and justice. Anybody getting sick of those two words? Good, because this is so massive. If you don't understand these two words, you miss the entire Old Testament. Sedekah mishpat in the Hebrew. Righteousness and justice. It's what is the foundation of God's throne, the rule that he uses to reign over his people, the rule that his people are to use to live daily life. Righteousness and justice. And that doesn't just mean being moral people. We've turned that in, into that in uh, American lingo. But the reality is, is righteousness is right relationship with God, with one another, and with creation. Right status. And justice is the activity that brings that about. So when we say sponsor kids through Compassion International, we're not just saying, hey, feel good today. Pat yourself on the back. You sponsored a kid and can put them on your fridge. Yay. No, we're acting off of the law of restoring someone who lives in the poorest nation on earth to a position where they get food and medical care, right status and right relationship with mankind and creation. But more importantly, we give them the gospel. Compassion International gives them the gospel, which restores them to right relationship with God. And so by sponsoring those kids, we're acting in justice. When we get an opportunity to help in bringing down the, the sex trade and sex trafficking in Oregon, we do so. Why? Because we want to take people who are oppressed and abused sexually and bring them into right status and relationship, restore their place in society. That's justice. This is not just a false gospel of social justice that was sown since the 1920s. This is the basis of how God works. That's why he came to die on the cross. The age to come is based on righteousness and justice. We also see that the age to come will bring protection from every threat. If you read through verses 2 and 3, uh, it says there that there will be storm that comes against us, and yet we will be protected in shelter. There will be wind that comes against us, and yet the, the authorities of the king and those who rule with him will be like a hiding place. We'll be thirsty, and yet water will come as streams in a dry place. And the sun will shine on us, and yet we will have shade. Every form of attack and threat is stopped, and God's people are protected. Third, we see that mankind is living up to his potential. The eyes of those who see will never be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give attention. We'll finally stop living in our own blindedness, and we'll start living up to our potential. Weaknesses will be redeemed. Those who used to be too hasty in their speech, guilty, will finally take time to know and understand. And those who are way too slow in response, you guys are guilty? That was fast. You just totally ruined my example. Will finally be quick and will speak, speak distinctly. And then lastly, there will be godly morality. No longer will our society look to the unwise to set our principles. No longer will men be in a position of power and abuse it. No longer will statesmen or pastors or fathers be in a position of power that they can abuse and yet have people still look to them as if they're godly moral examples. Finally, that will be ended. This is an amazing age to come. But he compares this with the next four verses, which speak of the current age. Take a look at verse 6. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity. 
to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. This is the age that has existed since the garden and exists until now, an age in which all authority and law and rule is based not on servant leadership, but on selfish leadership on establishing unrighteousness and injustice so that one can get ahead of the other. This is the kingdom of the I instead of the you. That I need to climb the ladder and get ahead. This, unlike the age to come, which is a wholly transformed society, a completely transformed society, this age that is passing away is a completely selfish society. And this age that is passing away that we exist in now is first and foremost based on unrighteousness and injustice. If I can do something that will put you lower than me, I will take advantage. Oh, I don't care if there's any slaves working over in another country. As long as I get my cheap stuff at Walmart, that's okay. Oh, I don't care if somebody's in the sex trade in order to produce the pornography because it makes me feel good unrighteousness and injustice, putting the I ahead of the you. And it has iniquity toward God. It speaks of the fool that speaks folly and practices ungodliness, uttering error concerning the Lord. The words here in the Hebrew basically mean that there is a speaking falsehoods of God, creating a God that doesn't exist in order to draw people over to your opinion of God. Man, there is nothing more that characterizes the current church than this statement. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It matters that I want people on my side of what I believe about God. And so you have people sowing division in churches left and right. People arguing about secondary matters that don't matter. Just simply to draw men towards themselves and build their own egos. This is the person uttering error concerning the Lord. And this leads into iniquity toward man because those people who do such things aren't loving the people they're drawing. What they're doing is building their own kingdom. We purposefully state wrong theology that could easily be corrected by reading Scripture because it works for us. And this is the beginning of iniquity towards one another. And that leads on to injustice toward all. We know of the starving and the thirsty and the oppressed and the poor, and yet we don't do anything about it. We have the ability to do something about two individuals who are starving and thirsty, and we think, $30 a month? Uh, That might cut into my Starbucks. I don't know. Ah, It's just such a big problem, Hans. What can we do? It's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, but it's one drop in the bucket. We see injustice as Christians, and our job is to do everything to correct it, but we don't because even though we have the power to act, we protect our own kingdoms, and so we leave the thirsty thirsty and the unsatisfied unsatisfied. We do this because we want to get our way at all costs. 
He uses the example in verse 7 of the scoundrel. And this is a very particular word in the Hebrew, which means someone associated with sexual immorality. His devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes. This is the person who arranges their life around trying to take advantage of someone for their own purposes and uses. To ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. They lie even when the truth is brought to light. This is the kingdom not of Christ, but of Satan himself. And what we find, if we're honest with ourselves, what I find, dear church, what I find in my life, dear flock, is that I am part of this kingdom way too often. I ahead of the you. My kingdom ahead of yours. My schedule ahead of yours. My time, my talents, my treasure is mine, not yours. It's how we live. It is the platform and foundation of the United States of America and the American dream of the middle class. It is the kingdom that is passing away. And so verse 8 ends with a clear statement, an underlying question, to which people do you belong? It says, but he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. The noble people of the age to come or the fool and the scoundrel of the age that is passing away, which group do you identify, identify with? The best way to know is what do you stand for? Do you stand on noble things? And so the next set of verses, Isaiah speaks to a group of people that need to examine themselves. And I would suggest that this group is one group, but it speaks to all of us, myself included. Let's take a look in verse 9. It says, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. Now, I joked with our two staff members, Sarah and Elisa, and with my wife, that one of them was going to have to teach this section. Because me coming up here and saying, hey, ladies, stop being complacent. That doesn't really work very well for the big scary guy up front, right? But let's look at this. Let's just look at this academically, okay? This is not God picking out just the complacent women. This is speaking as an example to the entire group of people of Israel. These are those that are self-satisfied and smug. They're called in Isaiah 3, the daughters of Zion. Let's take a look at that passage here. Isaiah three sixteen and 17. Hey, our new toddler call is working there. It's blocking out the... <laughs> oh, so that's Isaiah three sixteen and 17. That'll happen from time to time. Works well. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go. If you can tell me what mincing is, I'd really like to know. I'm not clear on that one. Tinkling with their feet. That's, a, that's another one, right? You can kind of get this picture in your head. These are women that are silly. Ladies, don't be a silly woman. 
I find lazy, apathetic men, and I find silly women in our culture. Be reverent. Be honorable. Don't be silly. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. This is not good. This is scary. God is saying, you're complacent. You're self-satisfied. You are at ease and smug in your kingdom. These people trust in themselves alone, and they are more concerned about their style, about how they look, about what their hair looks like, than they are fearing and obeying God. I just got to say this. I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I am amazed at how long people take to take Instagram photos. Number one, that they take them at all. But I was sitting at the airport the other day and I watched a woman by herself take two Instagram photos. It took her 15 minutes. You know why? Because the first one was of her plate, right? The food Instagram. She was moving stuff around, twisting it, taking pictures, looking at it, taking another one. And then she did herself. And I'm not kidding. She's sitting there So either she was redoing her makeup in her phone or she was taking an Instagram photo. I'm pretty sure she was taking an Instagram photo. And it was just amazing to me. How much time do we spend on vanity when all of that should be directed to Jesus Christ? This is our culture. This isn't just the women. This is everyone. And the prophet Amos, who was preaching at much the same time, he uses similar uh, language to speak to both women and men. So guys, you're not off the hook here. In that book that bears his name, he says this. This is in Amos 4, 1 through 3. Amos does not mix punches. I'm sure he probably had half of his membership leave his church and probably got 50 emails after this one. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Jeez, you think I'm harsh on any given Sunday. This guy is insane. He's trying to lose his pastorate. You cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. (laughs) Wow. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. He hits the men just as hard, but for these these women, he says, man, you're in this fertile and prosperous land, the region of Bashan, but he calls them cows because their entire life is centered around eating. I just want to eat more grass. Moo. That's all they do. Their entire life is for self-consumption. I mean, if that doesn't hit home for us as Americans, I don't know what will. More stuff, more stuff. I need more stuff. Self-consumption, that's all they're about. He says to the men, guys, take this seriously. Here's what he says. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the Mount of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. He's talking about a Super Bowl party here. I'm dead serious, right? Turn the big screen on, give me a lamb chop, and I'm sitting on my lazy boy. Nom, nom, nom. Nom, 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 Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. And like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. 
Let's make up more ways to entertain, entertain ourselves, guys. We need more hobbies to distract us from what actually is real. Who drink wine in bowls. You guys been to the grocery stores yet with the growlers? The growler refills? Entire gallons, right? People are going in to get filled for beer. It's crazy, bowls. And anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Amos does not spare the punches. This is a people bent on self-indulgence, living lives of entertainment, full bellies and drunkenness. Eat, drink, escape, and be entertained, for tomorrow we die. If you guys think I'm being harsh to you, I am just as indicted in this. If we do not turn from our ways that are the norm to culture and embrace Christ, this is who we are. There is no third way. And these are all speaking of the same character, people that are disobedient towards God's call to live lives bringing righteousness and justice to an unjust world, at ease in the vapid and lifeless kingdom of self that exists only to meet our own wants, and it will only end in destruction. Now, why do you think these people are called out by God? Why do you think we're called out by God? Is he just tired of their laziness? No, there's a particular reason. Notice he's not calling out the Canaanites. He's not calling out the Assyrians in the same fashion. He's calling out the people of God because they are missing out on who they're called to be. You see, God had asked the people of Israel to be a people that were called out of the rest of the world to live a life operating under righteousness and justice. And in doing so, they were to be a people that showed God as light and salt in the midst of a very dark world, and yet they refused simply by not being purposeful in following Christ. And so God brought his judgment. He brought his judgment upon the people as we have read here. Look at what it says there in verse 14. For the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. He's judging them, but he won't give up. And this is where that light starts to peek through that dark tunnel because he will still do a work to bring about a people that will represent him. And what we'll see next is this, a description of the age of overlap. We've looked very heavily at the two kingdoms and the two ages and now he gets us to the place where he starts to describe to us something particular that I'm calling today the age of overlap. Isaiah begins with the judgment in verse 14 that is to come upon the people who are at ease and complacent. Now, we're going to do a confession time, right? I don't have a booth. I'm not a priest. I don't have a caller. We're just going to do it publicly. How many of you in here feel convicted by what I've just spent 30 minutes describing? Raise your hand. If you don't, you probably weren't listening. Because that is us. But yet God, even in his judgment upon these people, he says he's going to do something amazing. Look at verse 15. He says that the judgment is going to stay until, verse 15, the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. That judgment will last until the Spirit is poured out. Now, as New Testament believers, we should read that verse 15 and we should pause. We should freeze in our tracks. 
Why? Because this phrase is huge to us as New Testament believers. How do we know this? Because the, the apostle of apostles, Peter himself, decided to give commentary on what this phrase means. Everybody turn with me to the right in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and take a look at verse uh, 17. Acts 2, verse 17. Peter here is quoting from a different prophet, the prophet Joel, but Joel uses the exact same phrase that Isaiah uses uh, where we were just reading. And so it starts in verse 16 there, but this is what is utter- was uttered through the prophet Joel, and then he begins to describe it in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Men of Israel, he says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now go forward to verse 32 and see how he finishes this section off. He says, This same Jesus, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's quoting from Joel chapter 2, and Peter says, God is already doing this. He's done it. He's poured out his Spirit. That's what we know in Christian terminology, as the day of Pentecost. It's happened. Now, for us to grasp what he's referring to and the impact that it makes on our faith, we need to slow down a bit and grasp what happened on that day of Pentecost. Because many of us, depending on where we grew up and what denomination we come from, we think that this is descriptive as something that should happen when the Lord is present all the time. That is not truth. That is wrong theology, guys. And let me show you why. We have to first understand the Jewish view of the two ages. I'll give you a little graphic here, okay? To the Jew of Peter's day, of Jesus' day, they believed that the Old Testament spoke of two distinct ages, just like we do. The passing age and the coming age. And that little spot right there where the two ages meet is the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Mashiach, what we know as the Christ. And they believed that at the moment that that Messiah, that anointed king showed up, click, the new age came. That's why you see them constantly asking Jesus, Jesus, when is your kingdom to come? You're a little bit late here. Is it going to be in five minutes? When is it going to be? He says, it's not for you to know. This was the view of the day the coming Messiah would bring automatically the coming age and the old age would go away. Now, what we have to understand is not only this, But how what Jesus taught is slightly different. You see, what Jesus taught is this. 
that there would be a time where the passing age and the coming age would actually lay over the top of each other. They would overlap. And in the midst of these two ages, this age that is there is the age of overlap, as I'm calling it today, where the passing age and the coming age both exist at the same time. The passing age has not fully been dismissed and removed, and the coming age has not fully come. Another way of looking at this, the age of overlap, is called the church age. It's where we exist. We exist in the overlap of these two kingdoms. His kingdom has been inaugurated, but it hasn't fully been put in place. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father on his throne based of righteousness and justice, instructing and being the lawgiver over his people that are truly his. And yet his people, us, those that are Christians, we operate in righteousness and justice, but still exist in the world of the passing age. It is the age of overlap. Now, how this plays in with the idea of Pentecost in chapter 2 is this. We have to grasp not only this, age, this, this idea of the overlap, the age of overlap, but we also have to grasp the idea of temple. Now, the temple in pagan religions, here's one you can look at. You guys have seen it. And just so you understand the reason that our government buildings look very similar to Greco-Roman temples is because our government is our God in the United States. That's why we look to it to solve all of our problems. If you go to Washington, D.C. and you stare around, you will rightly see temples everywhere with gods inside, gods that look like the Founding Fathers. This is our religion in the United States. It's called deism. That by living the law of the land and being good moral people, the apostles are the early, the early founding fathers, and the Constitution and Bill of Rights are our scriptures. That's where we get the idea of building our buildings to look like that. This idea of temple is hard for us to understand because we look at that building and we think that's government. No, that's a place of worship. It is a place where in the mind of the Greeks and Romans, heaven and earth, or in their view, Mount Olympus Olympus and the public met. Temples are places where the divine meets with the earthly. So in a Judeo-Christian mindset, we know that the first temple was the Garden of Eden, where God dwelt with man. There was no building. It was simply the place where God's presence inhabited here on earth. And Old Testament scholars across the board agree that the description of the garden uses temple language. And what we see when we look at the description of the temple that was to come in Israel, there's all sorts of garden imagery on it. Why? Because they viewed the Garden of Eden as the first temple. Now for Israel, remember that there were technically two temples. One was the tabernacle, the tent out in the middle of the desert that they would pluck up and they would move and they would take it wherever they went and they would replant it in the center of wherever they camped. This was in anticipation of the temple that would not come and the temple, or that would not move, that was to come, the temple of Solomon that eventually became a rebuilt temple that eventually became the temple of Herod that Jesus spent time in. That's what it looked like. And in that big building there at the right side of the picture, that is the main temple And only the high priest could go into a center part of it called the Holy of Holies once a year. And he could only do this if he had done all the right sacrifices and been able to cleanse himself from sin because the place where the divine and the earthly meet, heaven and earth meet, 
was a place where only purity could dwell. The presence of God and the forgiven high priest could enter in. It's the place where heaven and earth meet. And when the Israelites were given the law that was to make them a people of righteousness and justice, they needed to have in their midst God himself dwelling so that heaven and earth could meet and they could be God's people. Now, I want to show you a couple of scriptures here because I want you to get the idea of what happens when a new temple is dedicated, a new law is given, and God initiates an action in a people. Here's the first one. You can look at it, write it down. Exodus 19, verses 17 through 18. This is where the people of Israel are going to the mountain, Mount Horeb, where they're going to finally meet God and understand who this God that has freed them is and get his law of righteousness and justice and a bunch of other cultural laws that we know as the Mosaic Law. They were going to get this, and here's what it describes. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So there's this sound and this motion. There's also, at the end of this, talks about the trumpet of God, the sound and movement, and this fire descending that shows the presence of God. Let's take a look. After they built the tabernacle, what happened? This is in Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. The initiation and the dedication of the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Notice that filled, right? Very, very expressive. Filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was on it by, in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. So this filling, this idea of fire. When the temple was dedicated, Solomon's temple, look at this, Second Chronicles 7.1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Okay? When a temple is dedicated in Judeo-Christian mindset, what do you have? You have filling? You have fire? You have noise? In other words, you have God's presence is now in the building. That's what you have. Okay? Now, why this all matters for us to understand is because when Jesus departed, he told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit. And that is what they were doing in Acts chapter 2. What happened on that day? Wrong theology has gotten us so busted up in looking for secondary issues on a topic called tongues that we miss the point of what actually occurred in Acts chapter 2. Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire. In other words, they were in the shape. You guys ever sat by a campfire? What does it look like? A tongue. It's just descriptive. 
Okay? A tongue of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other, the word is glossa, languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. What did they do with that? They went out and they preached the gospel. What just happened? Well, we talked about the tabernacle. We talked about the temple. We need to ask ourselves the question, what is the temple now? What is the temple today? Us. It's the individuals who make up the church. The individuals at this point in time, in Acts chapter 2, were sitting in a room and God didn't rebuild bricks and mortar and then fill it and have fire come up. What did he do? He said, I'm filling my new temple with my presence. That's all Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4 is talking about. That the filling of the temple had been done and the rededication of the new temple, the temple that would last forever, was complete. That God's presence was among his people. The world no longer needed to go to a place, a geography, to experience God. They need to experience God's reign amongst his people in righteousness and justice and sacrificial love. This is what the day of Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit are all about. And that happened 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter 2. Go back with me to Isaiah 32 and I'll connect all the dots for you if I've lost you. Acts chapter 32 speaks of the two different ways of living, the two different ages, the two different kingdoms. And he comes to this place where he says the judgment of God upon the people of the passing age, the people that dwell in that passing kingdom, it will come until, verse 15. What? What does it say there? Until the Spirit is poured out. That happened 2,000 years ago. And the Spirit has been dwelling within the church ever since then. You see, the new coming age was initiated on that day of Pentecost. And what you see is a church, a temple that sits in the middle of broken people because the church is in the middle of broken people. You see, the passing age still in existence. The coming age initiated and started by the pouring out of the Spirit. And you see the age of overlap. And so those that dwell within the kingdom of Jesus are those described in the coming verses here. Look at verse 16 of Isaiah 32. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. He's speaking of those who dwell in this age of overlap where they are completely at rest in the middle of chaos. No matter what the world throws against them, they feel and know that they are protected because they sit under the reign of a king who dwells in righteousness and justice. There is peace, there is security. That phrase, quiet resting places, means sitting in repose even in the hardest problem. They're abiding in the way of Christ. And yet, as we live in the midst of both judgment and salvation, we live in the age of overlap, we see 
almost the bipolar nature of Isaiah here. The city will be utterly laid low, destruction. And yet happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. We live in both worlds. We live in the age of overlap because the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it is not here in fullness yet. And so we must be people that are different, that don't exist in the passing age, but dwell in the coming age even though we're not surrounded by it because it will come in fullness when Jesus rules and reigns. And so chapter 33, which I'm going to go through very quickly here, we see again the bipolar nature, the good and the bad. He starts with the bad. He starts with the people who are trying to destroy one another to get ahead. Look at verse 1. Ah, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. This this is those who are trying to get ahead at the expense of the other. The big fish that eats the little fish. The only problem with this system is that there's always a bigger fish. There's always somebody who's going to be cheating the cheater. And so God's people see this. And in turning and repenting from that way of life and that thought, they turn to Yahweh and his way of life and they say in verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. What is Zion? What is the new Jerusalem? It is us. I could take you again, we've done this many times in Isaiah, to Revelation 21 and 22. And what you will see is that the new Jerusalem is not a building, it is not a city, it is people, it is us, in which the Spirit of God dwells. And so the people of God cry out, our Lord is exalted, he sits at the right hand of the Almighty. He's working justice and righteousness in his people, those that are truly his. And the treasure that's contained within them is the fear of the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 6. And he, that king who reigns in righteousness, he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. And yet Isaiah knew all this to be true, but he could see the brokenness of his day just as we can see the passing age in ours. We cannot save ourselves. We only see destruction. Look at verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets, The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lay waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. But God is not done. Look at what he says next. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You, mankind, conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. It will come back on us. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime like thorns cut down that are burned with fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Our God is a God of action. And he won't leave us in the judgment that is to come. He will rescue us if we so desire. 
If we cry out to him and say, O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you, he will act. Why? Because as we talked about on Easter, he did the action of rising, of resurrecting. 2,000 years ago, he destroyed not only the enemy of Assyria that Isaiah is talking about, he destroyed the ultimate enemy of death and hell. Jesus came and died for us to be God with us, to be Lord, to be King, reigning over his people. He was crucified, resurrected to a new life, ascended into heaven victorious over hostile powers. He poured out his spirit upon his church. And so we must be convicted of our rebellion against him, confess that rebellion, turn from our old way of life and turn towards his law of righteousness and justice, love, mercy, and grace. We must be baptized into his authority, trust and believe in his word. And if we do this, if we identify with him, we receive the forgiveness of sins, the gift of new life by the Spirit. We're accepted into a new community of the Spirit, and we will be given a new mission and a new hope. The saddest thing to me is that we have taken that beauty that I just spoke of out of the gospel and turned it into a formulaic way to get to heaven when we die. The gospel is what I just said. Not a formulaic way to make sure you go to the good place and not the hot place when you die. And so we realize that we are not sitting waiting for that age to come when we die. Waiting for that age to come when we get raptured. Building our own kingdom now so that, meh, it'll disappear when I get raptured or when I go die. We are waiting for the age to come knowing it's been inaugurated, knowing we are his people already living in the age to come, it will only come in more fullness. And so what do we do? What do we do? We lean lean into it. We lean into the age to come. We lean away from the age that is passing and into the age that is to come. We are a people to choose, that choose to surrender to the Word of God and the working of His Holy Spirit in our lives. Trying to do what Christ calls us to here. Being afraid in the fear of the Lord that we were sinners that now have the ability to be saved by what Christ did on the cross. And so we turn to Him. We repent. We used to think in the way of the world in things like materialism and sexuality success, climbing the ladder, and we turn away from those things. Not just in action, but in worldview, and we turn towards the kingdom. We live as if Christ were ruling and reigning in flesh and blood in this school right now, because he is. He sits on his throne of righteousness and justice at the right hand of the Father, commanding you and I, and anyone who calls on his name to live differently. Not because it's moral. Not because it buys our way into heaven. But because it is his way that will be fully put in place in the age to come. Look at verses 14 and 15. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? It is he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, 
who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell in the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches far. We who are called to act to bring righteousness and justice when we see injustice, we who despise gain from oppressing others, we who refuse to be bought or bribed at a price, we who are called to speak uprightly, stopping our ears from even hearing gossip or bloodshed or hatred, and shutting our eyes from looking at anything that God would consider evil. Does that convict anyone in here today? Does that convict us of what we watched on Netflix this week? Does that convict us of the conversation of gossip that we were just involved in? We're living in the passing age, not the age to come. Well, Hans, what do we do? Do we white-knuckle it? No, we repent. We turn from the way that we came from. We turn toward Christ and his rule, realizing that his rule is the law of love, given as a sacrifice for us on the cross. Is this us? Is this you? If it is, I would point you to verse 17. Your eyes need to behold the king. Blessed are those that are pure in heart, for they shall see God. He continues and he says, Your heart will muse on the terror, where he who is counted, where, he, where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Those people will go away. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. He's drawing the attention of the people away from the age that is passing to the age that is to come. He says, behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Notice what he says about it. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. Notice the wording here, an immovable tent. God will never be forced out again. He will stand sure and strong. And there will come a day where truth, justice, and righteousness reign, when Christ alone fulfills all of his roles. Look at what it says in verse 21. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Now you will find commentaries that rightly state that this verse, verse 22, was used by the founding fathers to create our system of checks and balances of legislative, executive, and courts. Literally, it is in writing, you can find it, that this was used in the founding of our nation to create a government that we could deify. Notice with me, though, who is our judge, who is our lawgiver, and who is our king? And when he comes, he will save us. For Yahweh, the Lord, is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king. He will save us. Only when Christ comes in his fullness will we enter the age to come. Our society is based on this humanistic view that we can bring that age to bear. No, we just exist in the age of overlap. 
Only Christ will fully bring it to pass. He finishes with, Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. This day that is to come, the fullness of what Isaiah has said will transpire here. The age to come, it will come, and it will be a time of physical healing, of forgiveness. That age to come that we spelled out earlier, all of that will come to pass. But it's not here yet. And so we exist in the age of overlap, leaning into the age to come, living out Christ's righteousness and justice among us. How will the world know that we are his disciples? Not by our cool spiritual party tricks, but by our love one for another. That is the mark of his people. And so my last thing I want to ask you here is this application question. All the application for today sums up into this point. Are we, or am I, at ease in the age that is passing away, or are we leaning into the age that is to come? One commentator put this really well when he said, the prophet Isaiah was disrupting the people's empty complacency in order to replace it with true security. Let me say that again. The prophet Isaiah was disrupting the people's empty complacency in order to replace it with true security. If you're frustrated with me today or frustrated with the Word of God because it's convicted you, I would say to you that the loving God, the gracious God, has disrupted your complacency and my complacency in order to replace it with true security. That's my desire today, is that we would be shaken out of our stupor, out of our slumber, to realize we cannot go on looking like the world and yet testify to the age to come. The world looks at us and says, hypocrite. If the age to come is so great, then why do your time, talents, and treasure only go to the age that is passing away? We must realize that the age to come has been inaugurated, and we must lean into it. In the book, The Drama of Scripture by Bartholomew and Goheen, they quote theologian named Leslie Newbigin, and he says this, Meaningful action in history is possible only when there is some vision of a future goal. They go on to say after that, what you and I believe to be the goal of history will give particular significance and form to our lives today. If we recognize that we have been called to provide our world with a preview of God's coming kingdom, the hope of that kingdom's coming will shape all that we say and do in the here and now. This needs to be the vision of each one of us and the vision for us as a covenant community of faith. We must use our love one for another, our work of righteousness and justice, our caring for the oppressed, and our desire to grow in ever-increasing holiness as our testimony to the world. We have to speak by our lives that Jesus is reigning as king over his people. And we must invite anyone that desires to be part of that kingdom to join us.
That's what Isaiah is trying to get us to grasp. A people that lean into the age to come. The communion tables are open on either side. The cup is a symbol of his blood and the bread is a symbol of his body that was given for us. We do that in remembrance of him and what he's done for us. And so this time, as we sing a few more songs together and worship through voices, we also have the chance to go to the tables and to remember that Christ loved us so much that he died for us, that he gave himself in our place to free us of the burden of our sins, and that because of that, there is a response. And so we view this time now that we're going to worship as the time to respond to the teaching we've just heard, to the word of God that has just been given to us and laid upon our hearts. And so if you go to the tables and you confess, Lord, I'm one of those people that lives in the passing age, take that time to confess that and to say, Lord, I I want to follow you. I want to lean into the age to come. Teach me how to do that. And he teaches us through this church and the community within. He teaches us through the word. And so today, I don't want you to walk away from here only in conviction. I want you to be encouraged that Christ gave you a way out of the passing age that will be destroyed. And he did that through his body and his blood that was given for you and for me. And so a teaching that is heavily in conviction always doesn't leave us there. It points us to the light that is Jesus Christ. And he simply says, follow me. If you want to do that today, if you've never done that, or you realize today that, man, I am in that passing age and I want to follow Christ more clearly, come back and talk to Patrick and Courtney there in the back. Come back and talk with me and we'll explain to you what it is to follow and walk with Christ. We'll pray with you to accept him as your king and your savior and Lord. Amen. My prayer for you today is that the conviction that you may have wrestled with, that it has its work and that you come out the other side of that conviction realizing that Jesus is that light. And he is the one that is drawing you by his love and his kindness. It draws us to change our mind and our ways and to follow him. And I pray that you would leave here today in peace. If you'd like to talk with us in the back, feel free. Uh, Come and chat with us. Otherwise, go in peace and serve the Lord. In Jesus' name.